If you're like me, you might hear estate planning and go, ugh, gross. You might think to yourself, I'm not sure why I'd bother with that. Estate planning is only for the uber rich. Tallgrass begs to differ. Tallgrass founding attorneys Laurel and Riley think everyone should have an estate plan. They know estate planning seems untouchable to a lot of folks, like something you have to do inside a stuffy law firm of Stuffy McLawyer Pants Esquire. But I promise you, Tallgrass is nothing like that. For one, they work out of their home so their clients can feel at home. They obsess, because they're nerds, over making clients feel like they belong and are supposed to be there. Also, their kids might make an appearance. They will take time to answer all of your questions, even the uncomfortable ones. They will work relentlessly to make sure your plan is exactly what you need to feel secure and at peace. So if you've been putting off planning for what's going to happen after you've gone, it's time for you to give Tallgrass a call at 918-770-8940 and start your plan today. Or visit their website at tallgrassestateplanning.com and schedule a free initial consultation. For free! It's right there on the website. And of course, there's more, because this is a podcast ad. If you tell them you're a Pot for Good listener, they're going to take 25% off their service fees. Just tell them Pot for Good sent you. Stop thinking estate planning isn't for you and give Tallgrass a call today at 918-770-8940 or on their website, which I'm not going to read out to you again. It's in our show notes. Thank you, Tallgrass. Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we learn from those doing good in Tulsa, why they care, what we can do, and most importantly, what you can do. Pod for Good is produced and edited by Ranine Productions, which is mostly me, and can be found anywhere you get your podcast. I am, today and always, your chief philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller. And today, our guest is Elizabeth Frame Ellison, the president and CEO of the Lobach Taylor Family Foundation. We talked to Elizabeth about her vision for Route 66 and the Market District, uh, Lobeck Taylor's support for innovation in Tulsa, and see what it's like to see how the sausage is made on your favorite show, Top Chef. Not only how the sausage is made, but literally how sausage is made. That's the joke. It's funnier when you explain the joke. You know this. <laughs> Leave uh, it in. Yeah. Also, enjoy our conversation about how terrible Tulsa construction traffic is. So... Yay. <laughs> Enjoy. We are very excited to have Elizabeth from the Lobach Taylor Family Foundation on the podcast today. Elizabeth, how are you doing? Great. It's so nice to talk to you. Are you back in Tulsa now? I am in San Francisco right now, actually. Excellent. What are you, do what are you doing there? Or are you allowed to tell us? Is it a secret? <laughs> uh, today I'm just working, but I've been filming a show called Top Chef Family Style with my son uh, recently. So, I don't know. I think, what, there have been maybe three episodes released so far? For Correct. I, I have watched the first two. Uh, I don't know if we want to have spoilers for any of our listeners or not. Uh, but I will ask, how was the experience? As a, I'm a fan of Top Chef, so I'm just curious what the experience like was was like for you. I'm a fan of Top Chef too. It was so fascinating to see how uh, the sausage is made uh, figuratively behind the scenes on a TV set. So the the show was actually filmed in an Ikea in Burbank, California. It was an Ikea warehouse. It wow. wasn't an Ikea anymore, but they set up like the kitchen and all of the little rooms in various parts of the Ikea. And then they would kind of shuttle us from place to place where we were supposed to be. 
And, um, and yeah, it was, it was really fun, actually. I think after the monotony and stress of COVID, it was exactly the adventure that my son and I needed. And we had such a blast and he was really in charge. He was the main chef and I got to, you know, just support him, which was a really fun experience for us. And he was, I was just so proud of him. He did such a good job. Now that you mention it, an empty Ikea actually does seem like a perfect TV studio. <laughs> I guess it's a thing in Burbank. They have a lot of warehouses and they rent them out for people who um, who want to film different things. And so I think before it was Top Chef, it was America's Got Talent or one of or The Voice or one of the singing shows. So I'm also always curious, like with with these type of shows, how far in advance do they actually record them? Because obviously they make it feel like it's virtually live when they're showing them. But I'm always curious, yeah, how far in advance and what does a day even look like when you're doing it? Yeah, it was so interesting. So pretty far in advance is the answer. We were there in um, May. And because of COVID, they put us in a COVID bubble. And so we were um, quarantined, couldn't leave the set or our hotel room unless we were escorted by someone. And then we got COVID tested three times a week. And then they have a whole system for the kids so that they make sure that the kids have uh, school time and they're Mm -hmm. required by law to give a certain amount of school time. And so usually we would be on set for about nine hours a day, which is very challenging for a nine-year-old, but he figured it out. Um, And then you know, part of that time would be Taylor, Taylor, my son would be in school. And then the rest of the time we would be doing interviews or um, there was a cooking class that we would take where chefs would help us learn how to like be better at our techniques and skills. And then we would film the actual challenges over. Usually a a quick fire would happen in one day and then the elimination challenge would be the next day. Cool. Like I said, I'm I'm a fan of the show and it's just you don't often get to talk to somebody who's actually been on a show that you like. And I'm, I'm always just fascinated, like, you're, you know, how the sausage is made a little bit. And sometimes I wonder if you see too much of it, is it hard to continue to be a fan of the show? So I'm curious with you now that you have been on it, do you think it'll impact your ability to enjoy the show? It hasn't so far. Okay. I've, okay. I've loved watching Top Chef family style. And I still love all the cooking shows. I think I just have a different perspective now of like what the rules might mean and how the timing works with everything. Um, Mm -hmm. But I got to meet so many cool chefs. Marcus Samuelson was amazing. And then these families from all over the United States, these kids who share the same passion that my kid has for cooking. It was just, it was great Mm -hmm. to see, you know, how they kind of came into it and how they've how they've grown, especially the teenagers, because they're all TikTok influencers now. And I didn't know (laughs) what TikTok was when the show started. So, you know, there you go. Yeah. So last sort of Top Chef related one, but this this will segue a little bit. So is there anything that you learned from that that you think you can bring back to something you do at, say, like Kitchen 66 or Mother Road Market? That's a great question. So, I mean, I think from putting myself in a chef's shoes, I definitely learned about how important timing is and time management with executing dishes. So I feel like I can walk the walk a little bit better from that perspective. And then I think just generally, um, when you sign on for something like this, you basically have to let go of all control. I signed away the ability for me to object to any interpretation they had of me on the show, any ability for me to work at the times that I'm typically working and do anything the way that I'm used to doing it. And so 
sort of life lesson, letting go of control is something that I struggle with. And so it was really good for me to see that I could take a a three-month leave of absence from work. Everyone on my team just rocked it and was able to keep everything going. And then you know, I could let other people tell me what to do and where to be and kind of let go of the expectations that I was supposed to be knowledgeable about cooking or how to do any of this and just just have fun. And that was really freeing in a lot of ways. By the way, fantastic transition, Chris, and also great answer <laughs> that also helps us transition. So well done all around, everybody. That was great. Thank you. Like, not only did you learn about letting go and delegating, which is a thing all leaders have a problem with, Chris connected to what uh, what I feel like most recently, the Lobach Taylor Family Foundation has been sort of most known for, which is the sort of Kitchen 66, Mother Road Market sort of expansion of sort of growing Tulsa's sort of food footprint. That's not the term, but I'm going with it for now. But so the Lobach Taylor Culinary Family Foundation- scene if you want to be fancy. C- culinary scene, yes. For the bougie listeners of Pod for Good, <laughs> you can go with that one. So. For the plebeians, we will say whatever I said earlier. <laughs> I think it was food footprint. I think. Yeah, l- yeah. listen, I like alliteration. What do you want yeah, from me? It's good. So, it's good. I like it. Yeah. Um, like ha- the, That's a better hashtag than yours would, I feel like. But <laughs> anyway, this is why it's good that we're not in person, because that conversation would have been five minutes longer between Chris and I. Telsa's philanthropic scene is very, is very present and very you know, generous, which is wonderful. Uh, But sometimes it makes it hard to remember why each individual foundation was started. And so can you just give us like a brief history of the Lobeck Taylor Family Foundation? Absolutely. So the foundation was actually started in 1997. My mom, Kathy Taylor, and my stepdad, Bill Lobeck, were the co-founders and really started because they uh, sold a company and had, uh, had some excess earnings from that company that they wanted to use to do good in our community. Their first gift in the foundation was to their alma maters. My mom went to OU and my stepdad actually went to Old Dominion University in Virginia, where he's from. And so they endowed scholarships for both of their universities. When they were in college, they both faced hardships that almost made them have to uh, withdraw from college because they couldn't afford it. So it felt very important to them um, to give back to the universities that helped them get their degrees. Since 1997, we've made a lot of changes at the foundation. I came on in 2009, right when I finished law school. Initially, the foundation was really focused on education. When I first started primary and secondary education enrichment programs like City Year, Teach for America, stuff that helped students increase their outcomes because we all saw in Tulsa that educational outcomes were not where they should be. Um, One of the minor programs that we were just a grantor for was called the Tulsa Startup Cup. Actually, at the time, it was called the Entrepreneurial Spirit Award. And then it became the Startup Series. And now it's called the Startup Cup. It's had a lot of iterations. But we started that. We just worked on that program with uh, Spirit Bank and Tulsa Community College as a way to help businesses who are in the launch phase get access to mentorship and exposure, and then prize money that could help them test and launch their concept. We did a gap analysis and an impact study of that startup series of program and actually figured out that it had an outsized economic impact for the investment we were making in it. And it was really catching. It was really at the time, I'm, I'm trying to remember, I think it was probably around 2011, And the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Tulsa was not anywhere near where it is now. And I would say people weren't using the term entrepreneur and entrepreneur 
ecosystem outside of Tulsa Startup Cup and I2E and a few other organizations. And so the impact study that that we had done really helped us see that there was opportunity for growth in the entrepreneurship sector and that perhaps we could approach people, we could, instead of working with primary and secondary students initially and only, we could we could work with their parents and maybe we could help their parents start a new business. And that would inspire the kids to see, look what my mom and dad, look what my aunt and uncle, look what my neighbor did. And, and it maybe would have a not the same impact, but an inspirational impact and goal setting for those students. And so really through the Tulsa Startup Cup, now the startup series, and then a gap analysis we did, which was really supposed to be looking at the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Oklahoma as a whole and looking for opportunities for us to intervene. That really grew into our focus on entrepreneurship, which is where we've focused since 2012. That brings up a a, a question for me, which is like Jesse mentioned, there's a lot of foundations that are very generous and all of them have some specific focuses that can kind of creep a little bit into other areas, but do foundations and how do they work together to try to make sure that that everyone is sort of doing the most good and, and focusing on different gaps rather than everyone maybe focusing on the same thing? Yeah, I think that, you know, I think that's something that a lot of communities struggle with is overlap and and people trying to do similar work and maybe not communicating as well. One of the first things that we did when we started looking at entrepreneurship was we started a meetup. I read this book by Brad Feld called Startup Communities, and he's kind of the godfather of entrepreneurial ecosystems, tech stars guy. He lives in Boulder. And one of the things he talked about was exactly what you're saying, that the biggest mistake people make when they're trying to build ecosystems is they don't talk to the entrepreneurs themselves, and then they don't talk to the other stakeholders in the in the conversation. And so we started a meetup. I feel like there used to be a website called meetup.com or something, and yeah. people would organize. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. And, it was and it was called Cultivate 918. And we would invite everyone to come once a month. Anyone was welcome to join. And the, basically, the, our first step was, let's identify what the needs are of our community as a community. And then let's assign working groups to try to figure out how to make progress on that. And the biggest thing, the biggest thing people always want in terms of entrepreneurship, or at least the thing they think they want, is money. But the, the thing we saw over and over and over again was that people wanted a physical space where, entre- where entrepreneurs and stakeholders could meet. And so the great opportunity that we had was to work to build that physical space that could be a resource center for um, entrepreneurs. And once we had that data from entrepreneurs and from stakeholders, finding partners was actually not difficult at all. And GKFF had a great building in downtown Tulsa. They wanted something to do with it. And they were, and they were, they were welcoming the opportunity to build a resource center. And then we got the chamber involved as well. And they were open to it as part of their Tulsa's future planning. Tulsa Technology Center was trying to figure out how to access entrepreneurs. And we knew we wanted higher ed to be involved. And so once we had the data, it felt really easy to, to help people find their lane in, in partnership so that we could move forward. So, you know, a lot of energy has been put into like sort of entrepreneurship and supporting smaller businesses and realizing that creating something new here ends up, ends up creating both more jobs and more revenue for Telsa as a whole. We're sitting in the end of September 2021. Like what is, what's Telsa still missing at this point? 
I think that, well, I think in terms of the high growth tech business, which is, I think, what most people think about when they hear entrepreneurship, I think we haven't had our our unicorn business really explode yet that puts Tulsa on the map. It will happen. It's just a matter of time. I firmly believe that. I would guess it'll be in the cybersecurity space or in some sort of AI type of space because we've got a lot of investment in that going on right now. But I think on the other side, it's really, I think something that I would really like to see is more focus on small business support. We have so many um, great entrepreneurs we work with in Mother of Marketing, Kitchen 66 and beyond. And and it's food, but it's also um, retail and service industry entrepreneurs. And it's amazing to me because I know statistically 89% of our revenue in the city comes from small businesses, businesses with fewer than 100 employees. And the for those folks to get off the ground to launch, usually they need a loan of $10,000 or less. And finding access to that capital is so challenging for them. And if they are underestimated in any way, if they're, if they're non-white, if they're female, if they're an immigrant, that becomes a lot harder. And so uh, I think finding more resources for small businesses who are underestimated entrepreneurs would be the best thing that our community could provide that would support the growth of entrepreneurship and the growth of revenue for our city. Well, I know that your foundation was integral into bringing uh, the Kiva loan program here, which I, I remember, I remember reading about in Boston while I was just, you know, working in the nonprofit field. And then it showed up here and I was like, this is great. I love that idea. It's so because again, you if you just follow the news, you feel like you have to be like a billionaire to invest in something and to support something. And then Kiva's like, no, like you could give them ten dollars. Like mm-hmm. it's all about just collective, collective will. And I just, I love that. I just, but can you can you tell us some of like the great sort of success stories that have come out of that so far? Yeah, absolutely. One of our startup series winners, who was also a Kiva borrower is Benita Cooper, who owns Silhouette Sneakers in Greenwood, one of my favorite mm-hmm. retail businesses in Tulsa. We also have Kay Gusto, a Kitchen 66 mm-hmm. graduate in the Arts District. Amazing empanadas and just the yeah. best family you can imagine. They're a Kiva borrower. Felista, um, in our shops at Motherwood Market Complex, they make amazing Mexican cookies. And then it's just a Latin-themed party store, generally. And she's also a Kiva borrower and a Kitchen 66 graduate. So kind of what we were trying to do with Kiva was build a pipeline for entrepreneurs. So the idea was they would go through the Kitchen 66 launch program and learn the business side of starting a food business. And then they would go to Mother Road Market where they could test their concept through pop-ups and sampling and selling at our general store. And then when they were ready for opening their own brick and mortar or doing their own catering or their own food truck, they could go to Kiva and get the initial financing that would help them really launch that business. And it's worked pretty well. Obviously, the pandemic threw some of that stuff off, but Kiva also changed. They changed leadership and had changed their policies a little bit. And some of their policies were not in line with the goals of the foundation anymore. For example, they won't lend to justice-involved individuals anymore, and they won't they won't lend to uh, immigrants who are not who don't have legal status anymore. And those were two groups of people who we felt very passionately about supporting through entrepreneurship. And so we are not formal formal partners with Kiva anymore, but we still help funnel people to Kiva because anyone can access Kiva funds and anyone can still be a Kiva lender. So. 
So you brought up uh, Kitchen 66. I think a lot of people just associate it as another part of Mother Road Market, but it was around well before Mother Road Market. When did Kitchen 66 start? Kitchen 66 and 36 Degrees North actually opened on the exact same day, um, February of 26, 2015, 2015. They opened the same day. And part of the reason for that was when we were brainstorming what 36 Degrees North should be, one of the things that was really important to me was that we had a place that was accessible to all different types of entrepreneurs, not just people who wanted to work at a desk. And we have the Fab Lab in Tulsa for people who want to be more of a maker type of thing. And we have the Indie Emporium that helps support people who who make a craft type of goods. But we didn't either, we didn't have anything for people in the food business. And they really, people in the food business really need a kitchen space because they can't be licensed unless there's a commercial kitchen um, associated with their, with their business. And so we found this commercial kitchen that was for lease in the Sunoco building in downtown Tulsa. And it was it was our beta location for Kitchen 66. And we operated out of there until we opened at Mother Road Market in 2018. So I think a lot of people think about some of the restaurants that came out of there and came out of Mother Road. What about some of the like food products that are sold retail? What what's kind of what is what are some of your favorite ones that have that have come out of it? Oh my gosh, I have so many, but my very, very favorite is Sixth Day Snacks. They actually just opened a brick and mortar location, which I'm so excited about, but their story is amazing. So they make really delicious salsa and snack type nut, spice nuts, stuff like that. But they actually started the business because one of the owners, the, the, it's a husband and wife team and the wife, Dawn, she was diagnosed with cancer and she had to be treated for cancer. And luckily the treatment worked. After the treatment was over, they got the hospital bills and they didn't know what they were going to do or how they were going to pay the bills. And so they started, they joined Kitchen 66 to start making food to try to pay back their bills. And what happened was they found a passion for this business and were able to actually quit their jobs and launch this as a full-time business that their family uh, family works on together. They go to trade shows, they go to farmer's markets, they sell out of their retail location. They sell at the general store at Mother Road Market, and they're just their business is booming, and it's so exciting to watch. That's really cool. I think uh, one of my favorites. I think I'm trying to remember. It's the hot sauce. Is it Baby D's? Baby D's, yes. And you that know, was one Dylan. Of the early ones. Yeah, Dylan Hargrove was the owner of Baby D's, and his branding and his bottles were just amazing. Um, and he actually works in the nonprofit industry as well. He had a he and his wife had a baby and he has closed baby D's. Oh, um, no. So it's not his, it's not in business anymore. So if you had it, you were, you were one of the lucky ones. I, I might even still have some of their spiced honey, <laughs> which was really good. Oh, so good. I wish that, <laughs> I wish that chicken and the wolf, which makes fried chicken, fried chicken mm-hmm. sandwiches at mother Road market. I wish they would use the baby D's hot honey on their chicken. Cause I think that it would be, be amazing. That'd be really good. Uh, speaking like, uh, as far as innovations go, I must say, like, and no one's really going to care about this, but I love the t-shirt vending machine at Mother Road Market as a t-shirt aficionado. Uh-huh. Uh, I was like, yes, that's the kind of vending machines I like. Mm-hmm. So They're so cool. I know. And so Mythic really dreamt up that vending machine. Cole uh, Cunningham and his wife, Allison, are the owners there. And and we traded when they were talking about a booth that one of their biggest challenges was staffing because labor costs are really expensive. And they said, we have, uh, 
we have a rule. If you open at Mother Road Market, you have to be open the same hours as the market is open because the experience is weird if you go and stuff mm-hmm. is closed. And so that was that was sort of a limiting factor for them because they couldn't they didn't think that they could make enough from their cart to justify a full time employee there. And so our solution was the vending machine can be open when your staff can't be open and you can bring staff in just at peak hours and then you can have the vending machine so you'll still have a presence. And it has been such a hit. And now Mythic just last weekend opened a a full scale shop, Mythic City, at shops at Mother Road Market. So they're now like real deal, full scale opened. And they're going to do all sorts of sort of experiential stuff there, live screen printing, they're going to do birthday parties and stuff eventually and all sorts of Tulsa things to to get people pumped about Tulsa. I've been I've been trying to reach out to them because we need some pot for good shirts and I figured I should have them make <laughs> it and so that'll make that a lot easier for me. So Absolutely. Excellent. You talk, we when you were talking about top chef and like giving up control over things. That leads me to ask this question which is how how active how active do, would you like to be? And how active are you in the day-to-day operations of the foundation? I'm very active. Um, I, <laughs> I'm very active and I've, I've been really fortunate that I have just an amazing team that I get to work with every day. They're, they're not only amazing at their jobs, they're just really cool, passionate, interested, interesting people. And I feel so lucky to work with them. But we've assembled now a, a great leadership team and a great, great team of passionate Tolsons to work on the project. So the great thing about that for me, it did require letting go of some control. But the great thing about that for me is it gives me the space that I really didn't have, especially during COVID, to do more of the strategic thinking and policy work and writing that is really the part of my job that I love the most and I want to lean more into and probably that I'm, I'm best suited for organizationally. I will say, though, in case any of my team is listening, I have a really bad habit of getting down into the weeds when they're, when someone brings me a problem. I just want to solve it, and I want to know about it, and I want it to be solved immediately. And so I'm trying to be a lot better at saying, I think you guys, I think you guys have this under control. Let me know what your solution is, and I'm excited to, I'm excited to hear about it. So I'm still working on it. What's your policy on how, like, do you try not to send emails to uh, your team like late at night, even if you have an idea and you like want to get it out <laughs> because you know, they'll stress out about it. So I am not very good at not sending emails late at night. I work really weird hours because I have two kids and I, I wake up really early and work so that I can pick them up from school. But usually my, what my staff knows and what we talk about a lot from all of us is just because I send you an email at five o'clock in the morning does not mean I expect a response at five o'clock in the morning. And if I'm up in the middle of the night and I'm getting work done, that's my work time. And that doesn't need to be your work time. So I hope everyone understands that there are some people outside of my office. I email that may not feel the same, but <laughs> yeah, I always think, thing. Yeah, yeah, I always think as long as the, and maybe this is a difference between Jesse and I, I always think that as long as the expectation is set that I'm sending this when I'm thinking of it or when I'm able to send it, but I don't expect a response from you at the same time, I expect you to just respond during your own normal working period, then I think it's usually okay. But it can be difficult when, as Jesse said, people can know the expectation, but still stress a little. My my issue with that has always been that the expectations change over time, and I'm not told of those changing expectations. So uh, I did once have a boss, though, who not only emailed late at night, uh, would also just put all of the subject 
the, the, the body of the email in the subject line. Oh. And she did, and she did that because one, she wasn't great with technology and two, she just needed to get the, she just needed to get this thought out there. So she would do that. And she eventually came around to the fact that like, yeah, I'm not, I shouldn't read that email at 1130 PM at night. Like I'll, I'll see it the next day and that's okay. I just had to be like, listen, like you don't, Pay me enough for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> and also, it's also on a phone. It's impossible to read the entire email in the subject line. So yeah. I don't know what you expect from me. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. And I also think you know, as leaders, even even if we say one thing, we have to model what we want our what we want our team to do. And mm -hmm. I am the first to admit that that the coronavirus really impacted our work life balance in a negative way. And we're trying really hard to get some of that back. And my team is still working remotely for the most part. We're trying to, as a leadership team, we're really trying to model taking the weekends off and and not sending emails on the weekends. And if you take vacation, you're actually on vacation. And like, please enjoy that time because we need you to work hard when you come back. And so my new method is I email myself. If I think of an idea on the weekend, I just email it to myself. And then on Monday, I can copy that email and, and forward it to whoever I want to send it to. I mean, it amazes me that it took this long for like Gmail to implement the scheduled send function. Cause I feel like that would have fixed a lot of these problems. Huh. You just be like, write the email, send at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. Thank you. Done. <laughs> Why does an Outlook have that? We should have this. Like, we use our email for so many things above what email is for, but email has not changed to adapt to that at all. So, I, yeah, you're exactly right. And I feel like they, it also, I wish email had a better prioritization system because I don't need my like Instacart advertisements coming in in the same place as my work emails. And that hasn't been addressed either. So, yeah, sure. yeah. email is just a mess. I've been fascinated by kind of the evolution of what you are doing with first Kitchen 66, then Mother Ode Market, then the shops at Mother Ode, and now almost like a sort of like a, a master plan for that area of Route 66, which until recently was a somewhat underutilized resource of Tulsa. How did that kind of become part of your vision for Tulsa? And what is your ultimate goal around that? So great question. In terms of my, in terms of the evolution and it becoming part of my vision for Tulsa, I think, I think the the biggest thing is that we recognized and multiple multiple marketing studies that I participated in from the chamber and the city of Tulsa and other groups always acknowledged that that the river and route 66 were underutilized assets for for Tulsa for tourism and for community building we happened to own property on uh, 11th street in Tulsa. And I was able to convince the family to make that donation to the foundation so that we could execute, execute mother Road market and kitchen 66 in that space. And, you know, part of that was part of the work to, to convince everyone that that was a good idea was doing a feasibility study for building a public market along Route 66. And so from, from what we learned about, through that feasibility study about what, what was needed in that area for the market to be successful, a lot of it was that the, the area itself had to have more density and more infill and more activity. And so taking that goal and then layering on the fact that equity, inclusivity, and saving off gentrification were very important goals for the foundation. 
sort of helped us arrive at our theory of change to develop an inclusive destination district that would have density, would create pride of place for the community, and would have the physical infrastructure to really support the type of activity that we hope will happen in the Tulsa Market District. And and of course, that's all anchored by Motherhood Market and Kitchen 66, which bring in, I I can only use 2019, unfortunately, because the data is so bad. But we had uh, nearly 600,000 visitors at Motherhood Market in 2019. And the traffic counts that INCOG, not called INCOG anymore, now called TEO, I think, took on, does through their streetlight program, said that the traffic counts doubled from November of 2018 to November of 2019. Wow. Well, and, and we've already seen the influence kind of spread. So you've seen all the way up to 11th and Peoria, you've seen that shops go in there, built out a diner going in, and then you've seen continued growth towards TU as well. You know, some new restaurants and shops go in. So it's it feels like it's becoming more of an emphasis. I and I really enjoy all the the large neon signs that are going up that kind of evokes the the history of Route 66 as well. I love the neon signs. I think the Route 66 Commission, they have a um, grant program that supplements. You can apply for a neon sign and they'll pay for half of the neon sign up to $15,000. And I think that's been a huge resource. And there are great property owners in town who, as soon as they lease property out, the first thing they ask their tenants to do is apply for a neon sign grant and they'll help pay for it in some instances. So I think that's really gone a long way to sort of placemaking in the area. And then the improvements that that we're working on as a public-private partnership with the city of Tulsa to really build out the Tulsa Market District are going to even uh, enhance that even further. So there will be more neon, uh, more sort of pylons marking the space, wider sidewalks, native trees and plants, and it will be a, a really beautiful place to spend an afternoon or an evening or a morning. Yeah, I mean, we love Mother Road Market and that area, but I mean, frankly, it's it's not super welcoming to pedestrians, especially across the street where the sort of the overflow parking is. And, you know, that's the kind of was the big thing you could see sort of holding that that area back. So making that more pedestrian, you know, bike friendly and more welcoming, I think you could see that area just explode even more. Absolutely. And one of, you know, one of the things we do those when, bridges. Yeah. That's so funny that you say that because that is one of the, that's one of the wild ideas that has been brought to us that I just love so much. And I can't figure out how to pay for because they are very expensive. <laughs> yeah. um, yes. Over the, over 11th street and someone proposed one over the railroad, which yes. I think would also yes. be really oh, cool yes. because that Parkside neighborhood back where Hillcrest is, it would be a huge opportunity for them to really, um, you know, be more connected to the rest of the rest of the community. They're kind of surrounded by a highway and a hospital. So it's Mm -hmm. a little, it's a little tough to feel connected there. Well, you know, it's doing well because when parts of town are doing well, that's when Tulsa decides that construction on the streets need around there needs to start. So, Oh, the construction it's, it's like, I guess it's just part of being a Tulsan is you just have to learn how to navigate the construction. Lewis was under construction for, I a think a time. good four years and they kept and it, and my office is right there. So obviously I drove through it every single day, twice a day. And it was like, they would, they would rip up the street and fix something. And then 
the next week they would rip the street back up and fix something else. And there was no coordination. And so part of my goal with the street work that we're getting ready to start now is working with all the different parts of the city to make sure that all the work that needs to be done happens while the street's torn up one time. So hopefully it'll be a little bit more efficient and coordinated. I mean, wouldn't that, yeah. wouldn't that be nice? Like, yeah. How do they coordinate? Yeah. Well, other cities, I was, Chris, maybe you were with me when I was talking to somebody about this, but we were talking about other cities like tell you ahead of time, like <laughs> on the street, that construction is going to be happening for this reason, for this long. And that sign stays there throughout the construction. Tells us just like, nope, today, today, all the highways downtown are going to be closed <laughs> for years. It's so true. And, you know, we're, we haven't even started our street project yet, which will take a year and it will be painful, but it it will only happen hopefully one time. But now we're just, we're just in the process and telling all the businesses and property owners about here's our timeline for construction. Here's what the city is doing, blah, blah, blah. Well, the railroad decided that they were going to do a construction project starting two weeks ago. So then they put signs out saying we're closing the street. Well, they're supposed to be closed today, which it's not even close today, but it's, yeah, no, we don't know who to contact about it. And everyone, of course, thinks it's our work that's happening. And so they're saying, well, you told us you were going to communicate the schedule. And we're saying, we would love to, but that is not our project. <laughs> Just put like a big sign along the tracks, be like, call us. Yeah. Train people. <laughs> this is Let's a railroad talk. project. Call yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah. I mean, again, I understand like, it's complicated organizing all those things, but I know that when the city's doing construction, right, by the time they get to the construction phase, it has been in, in the process for a while. So I feel like there has to be a person that could stop it and be like, wait, six months later, we're doing this other thing. Why don't we move this one up and do them at the same time? And I, I actually think with the change that the city's made, and I'm probably out of my depth talking about it, but in, in consolidating the planning office and NCOG into TEO, I think that's the goal of that, of that combination is to help the process be more efficient. But what I've discovered through, through the, the TIF execution is there are also different buckets of money and the city is really restrictive about which buckets can be used in for which projects. And so I think a lot of it is you know, project A is ready to go and project C is still waiting for the federal release of funding for whatever. And so they don't want to delay project A. And so they get started and then end up ripping up the road eight times. <laughs> That's not going to happen with us though. Yeah. And th then there's like, then there's weather related things they have to deal with and all stuff. I get it. Like, oh, it's God. hard. Like, it's always easy to critique from here, but I mean, I feel like Telsa really just asks for it a lot when it comes to how they handle road construction, but it's, it's interesting because, and I don't have, I don't have experience with municipal government outside of Tulsa, but I, I mean the TIF process and I didn't know anything about TIFs when I applied for a TIF and it took nearly two years for us to get the TIF from, from application to approval. And I, I feel pretty well resourced, even though I was out of my depth. And so I, I just, I get frustrated sometimes thinking about folks who could really benefit from TIF funding or other types of uh, city funding. And it's just not even worth their time to educate themselves because it's such a complicated process and it takes so long to get to get to fruition, which is why you usually see the big developer groups um, applying for TIFs and not, 
the little guys who really need the help. I, I want our listeners to know that I tried to apply for one of those neon signs, but I'm too far away from 11th Street uh, oh. to count. Oh. Uh, also, also, I'm zoned as a house, so I could not get the huge <laughs> neon sign on 12th and Florence Place here. We need but to, I tried very hard. We need to get you just like an off random office on 11th Street, yeah. so that you. Uh, can... Yeah, I really want. I really want that sign. I saw that well, uh, today. Uh, uh, Howdy Burger got theirs for their new yeah, 11th Street yeah, location. That... Yes. I'm so excited that they're opening a second location after incubating at Mother Road Market. And their burgers are so good. So good. They are delicious. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned the complicated TIFF process and how it sort of leaves out the smaller, smaller. By the way, for our our listeners who don't know, it's tax increment financing. I just. Yeah, I was going to add a note later. Okay. Um, but I was just thinking, we, we probably all know what it means, but I don't know if everyone... <laughs> I, li- I literally just learned what it was like a month ago. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, working on a story. But I, I, I feel like that's a good transition to talk about the work you're doing with like the Vest Group, giving money to those who have had problems getting money before. Yes. And especially in, in, in case of Vest, women and women of color. Can you tell us about, we've actually had a couple of guests who have been connected to it. And so I just like hearing their perspective on what their goal is and what, what's excited them so far. Best is such a cool organization. And it's really the brainchild of Erica Lucas, who founded a Stitch Crew, uh, which is an accelerator in Oklahoma City, but it's for all of Oklahoma. During the pandemic, we start, we, she and I are, are friends and we would text a lot about how frustrated it frustrated we were to see so many women dropping out of the workforce and so many statistics around female job loss. And sort of at the same time, we're having this reckoning with race and recognizing that a lot of the people who we see um, talking on the news and who are quoted in the paper are not representative of our community and the work that we do. And so really it started out as, as just how can we amplify female voices? How can we off, how can we make it so easy for someone to use a woman as a resource that they have no excuse not to do it? And then it turned into how can we help develop women and especially women of color who are who are trying to navigate the career their careers and parent and you know have work life balance and how can how can we find support for them and for ourselves to really to really figure out the best way to do that. And now I feel like one of the greatest values for me is just the validation of, of talking to other women in Oklahoma who are sort of frustrated by the same things and facing the same struggles and saying, okay, like we all feel this way. Now, how do we, how do we do something about it? And so I think, yes, it's connecting, uh, it's connecting startup businesses to potential funders and especially working with people of color because we know that it's it's hard for women to find money and it's twice as hard for women who are who are people of color to find money. But beyond that, I think it's just really being providing resources for professional development and providing, I don't know, I guess I'll call it solidarity and community in Oklahoma where we can all have a safe space to share frustrations and say, am I just imagining this or is this happening? And and if it is happening, what can I do about it? And it's it's a great resource. Yeah, I feel like people who are not in the sort of dominant money group, which is, again, white dudes, um, <laughs> all the other groups have to recreate the sort of networking and all the, all the different systems that naturally over time have been made 
for those groups, like where they, where they meet, where they have lunch, where they get their drinks, like where they, where they vacation, where they golf, all of those structures where they network and talk with each other, those have to be recreated for every other group. Yes. Yeah. It's so true. I had a meeting recently with a friend who I was out of town and he was at the same, he was in the same place and he texted me and said, Hey, I'm on a work trip. Do you want to meet up for a cup of coffee? And I was like, absolutely. So we meet for a cup of coffee, we're catching up and I, and I find out he's on a trip with all people from the restaurant industry from Oklahoma and it's a golf, it's a golf and baseball trip. And so of course I wasn't going to be invited because I, I'm not a, a dude. And so I wouldn't fit in with that, with that group. And it was so frustrating to me. And so I actually called my dad and I was like, dad, I'm so mad about this. Like I should have been invited to this, but I wasn't because I was a woman. And my dad said, oh, well, I'd invite you to my work retreat if I had one. And I was like, really, would you? Because I'm a married woman and I would have been the only one on an all guys trip. And he was like, you're right. That would have been really difficult for me. I don't know how I would have navigated that. And so it's a tough, like, I want, I want people to still get to have their fun work retreats, but it would be great if we could figure out a way to make them more inclusive so that they benefited everyone. I don't even know what to say about that. It's just so annoying and ridiculous. (laughs) Right. Like, first of all, I'm not okay with people like going on, you can go on like industry retreats. That's fine. But like, make it actual, make, do some work. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I don't know. Like the, the conferences that are in like Hawaii, I'm like, all right, so I'm going to stop you right there. Yeah. I don't think this is a work retreat. I, like, I don't think that much work's going to get done. This I, is for networking and getting a tan. I guess that stuff doesn't happen in the nonprofit industry. I haven't been it to does one not. of those. It I, does not. I would I like to be that. invited. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've gotten to go on, but yeah, there's a reason That's, they pick yeah. places like Las Vegas, Las Vegas and Orlando, yeah. Hawaii, and Scottsdale, Arizona. They're not going to, they don't usually do these in just like a random city that has, has no entertainment. So. Right. Well, yeah. and my, one of my friends got invited, her husband got invited on one of those trips and they're both attorneys. They work in the same industry, but her husband was invited to attend the conference and she got cycled into like the wife group, which was great, but it was like shopping and pedicures and, you know, a little insulting, frankly. Yeah. Listen, first of all, I love shopping and I would happily take a pedicure at this point uh, (laughs) of the pandemic. So let's stop, let's stop just attaching gender roles to things. How about that? Right. I would much rather go get a pedicure than play golf, honestly. Yeah, so. a hundred percent agree. A hundred percent. We're going for pedicures. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Ooh, like doing a live podcast while getting a pedicure, which would be very hard to edit because there are a lot of weird noises happening. <laughs> so both from uh, our mouths and our feet. Now, when they pull um, out the files to start filing on your feet, then it's just going to be a lot of giggling. It'll be it'd be a rough. Yeah. Podcast. Okay. Yeah. That that will just pause. Like let's mute for that for that <laughs> point because that's just too yeah. To talk. yeah. Uh, everyone's very sensitive yeah. on their feet. This, this took a very interesting turn and I yeah. like it. Um, so are there any, maybe some of the lesser known programs that we haven't really hit on? I know we've hit on a lot of popular ones or some ones that have interested us, but what's something we maybe left out, left out so far? I think we have some, we have some really cool grants that we give. You've definitely hit the the programs um, that we run ourselves, our Kitchen 66 and Mother Road Market and the shops at Mother Road Market, Tulsa Market District and the Tulsa Startup Cup, although, or Tulsa Startup Series, although um, it has been on hiatus since the pandemic. So I don't know how it will be reborn moving forward. 
Other than that, we have we have a grant program that's really now designed to support um, ideas that will further our goal of inclusive placemaking and creating an inclusive destination district along the Tulsa Market District. So the Tulsa Market District itself has a business association with the steering committee, and they're working on ideas for activations along the Tulsa Market District and ways to increase density and ways to um, attract more customers and businesses. And so that's one of the really fun things that I love. It's not work that we're doing directly, but it's work that we're supporting financially and and watching sort of how the community itself is responding to our goals of physical infrastructure, pride of place, and business economic development. And then beyond that, I think we have some really cool partnerships in the community. And one of my favorites is a program called A New Leaf, and they provide educational resources to folks with developmental differences. They operate out of Broken Arrow right now, but they're opening a village in Owasso soon. But the program that we've supported is called Blooming Acres, and it's their aquaponic farm program. And so they have the whole, they worked with um, Camp Lockridge, who we also was also a grantee and built an aquaponic system. So the that's the um, the big tank with the fish and the and the fish provide nutrients to grow the plants and then the plants are able to feed the fish and it's like this complete food system. And so they have one at Blooming Acres, they have one at Camp Lockridge, and I hope that they'll have many, many more of them because it's such a cool thing um, and such a great regenerative program that would be hugely impactful in our food system. I get to take um, a tour they're... and see it. And it's pretty awesome. Oh, you've seen it. Oh, good. It's yeah. so amazing. It's super cool. And the and the folks that work there are just so passionate about mm. their jobs. And they provide plants for Mother Road Market, or they did before the pandemic. They sold plants out of out of our general store, and they came and watered our plants and cleaned our and made sure that everything was still alive and healthy. And they have a program that does that for businesses, which is also very cool. But I love the independence that they're able to provide these folks who are working through their programs and the fact that they're growing food and have a, a CSA that sells out uh, every single time that they offer it. Any grants for, say, hypothetically podcasts that help feature uh, people doing good work in Tulsa? Asking for a friend. <laughs> you know, we have a discretionary fund, Jesse. I would encourage you to apply. Uh, we have funded, we fund the Tulsa Debate League. We've funded the Schweitzer Fellowship before. We've funded... Um, some programs through Growing Together and and others like that that are really designed to bring community together and and really reach out to individuals in the community and find out how they can help support each other. I, I love all of our grants that help uh, kids and families. And so even though that isn't directly what we do, we end up funding not in huge dollar amounts, but we end up funding grants for for a lot of those programs. I mean, that is the realest answer I've gotten from the joke I make about trying to find sponsors <laughs> for Pod for Good. So uh, thank you. Thank you for actually like answering it and not just awkwardly laughing until we ask our next question. Right. Um, well, now, now you just need to do a uh, kid's version of Kitchen 66 as well, since now you've had the family version of Top Chef. So that's right. <laughs> I would love to do that. My My kids actually have a food business that they have designed called Cheesy Buns. And I have two boys, so like anything that's related to anything close to potty talk is always high mm. on their priority right. list. But Cheesy Buns is going to be a burger shop, but also serve everything with a lot of cheese on it. So they have mm. like Brussels sprouts with cheese and 
um, fries with cheese and burgers with cheese. And they, yeah, I mean, before the pandemic, they were going to pop up at the food truck outside on the patio at Mother Earth Market. Um, So maybe, maybe when we're all vaccinated, they'll, they'll decide that they want to do that again. But we actually have had some, we've had a couple kids go through the program. Mm -hmm. We've had Chef Remy Smith is a graduate of our program. She had a subscription box. She's done a cookbook. She's a mm-hmm. really cool young woman. And then um, Onafade, who runs a cookie business called Onafade's Cookies. They're amazing. They're like the perfect size. Like, what can I compare them to? Like a silver dollar sized cookie. So they're the perfect size for you to accidentally eat like 10 of them just <laughs> without realizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's adorable. He's, I think he's 14 and he, he and his mom, his mom also have, went through the launch program with a different business, but they uh, pop up in the kitchen all the time and they're just awesome. And I don't know if they went through kitchen 66, but one day I was there, there was a pop-up. It was like a low cal ice cream or frozen yogurt. I think they were maybe from yes. Union or something. Yes. They haven't gone through the program, but they have, they have great ice cream. I've had it before. Mm-hmm. It's really good. We've also seen a lot of uh, vegan food coming to the market and um, applying for Kitchen 66. It's sometimes I feel like our applications help me see what food trends are going to happen. And I'm thinking nice. vegan food is going to be all the rage in the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. We want to give you a chance if there's any, you know, final things you want to plug, any upcoming events, any new interesting things going on. Uh, and if you want to plug how people can connect with Foundation, with, uh, you know, any of any of your programs, now's your chance. I would say the Mother Road Market's third birthday is the first weekend in November. And this will sort of be hopefully our relaunch of events at Mother Road Market. And um, we're excited to welcome everyone back into the space. And we'll have a lot of fun events and giveaways going on. So I'd encourage everyone to come check out Mother Road Market the first weekend in November. And of course, um, you can always eat at Mother Road Market Tuesday through Sunday and shop at the shops at Mother Road Market. We'd love to see you. Um, Please brave the construction. It's not that bad. (laughs) And uh, one plug of my own for people who like to try a bunch of different things, but feel awkward ordering from multiple places, there's now a website you can go to and you can order one item from each place, pay for it, and then they'll buzz you when your food is ready. So it's it's a little less weird to order like fries from here and then sushi and then a milkshake. You know, you don't have to feel weird about doing that. Yes, that was actually one of our COVID innovations that um, is here to stay because it worked so well. (laughs) And also, if you're into trying a lot of different places, uh, Wednesday nights are flight night at Mother Mm. Road Market. And so uh, every shop offers a smaller taste of something um, for a little bit less cost and then uh, flights of beer as well. So so does that mean i can get like a little t-shirt from the <laughs> mythic press like how's that gonna work you, you get a so button ask. you get a button a button okay <laughs> that that makes more sense yeah. i was thinking just like stickers. half a shirt yeah yeah okay just like a, one of those like 80s like half tops oh, um, crop top you get a crop top crop tops that's what it was like. yeah, yeah it had a name they're um, back so i mean <laughs> Not for us. Everything that, yeah, everything that's old is new again, right? So no, never, never for me. I don't want, no, no. Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Uh, This this has been fun. And we look forward to all the different word 66 things that the Lobag Taylor Family Foundation can come up with. So there's at least 10 more in there somewhere. (laughs) 
we'll no. see. Jesse and Chris, this has been a blast. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Pot for Good. Please make sure to like and subscribe to Pot for Good. Anywhere you get your podcast, we are on Spotify, we are on Apple, we are on all the places. Please make sure to like our Facebook page where we release teasers for future episodes as well as little clips from episodes that have been released. And please make sure to give us a five-star review. Also, if you're out there listening and you haven't gotten the vaccine yet, please, please do it. Let's get over this. Get it done, Tulsa. <laughs>